if all you're doing is saying, I'm not part of the problem, I guarantee you you're part of the problem because it's going to, the systems are built to reinforce it along the way. These are things like our legal system, which at one time said only white people could be citizens, or it could be voting legacies where it's a hundred years now only that women would be able to vote, right? There are all these systems set up to create inequity. And if we're not actively working to identify them and change them, then we might say, well, I'm not that way, but we very much are. We collude. My name is Carl Preisner, and I'm a model minority. Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about. Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, boy, girl, or anything in between. This is a show about all of you for all of us. Hi, uh, we're back after taking a week off, I think for all the right reasons. And uh, Sharon and I have already kind of shared our thoughts about what's going on outside. Um, and we're just going to pick back up with episodes that have been recorded weeks, some months ago. Um, and we wanted to air our conversation with Carl Preisner because it's very much on point, some of the topics we talk about. But again, worth noting, this interview was recorded in early April. Um, but it's still relevant. So yeah, let's go back to our normal episode. Today, we're talking to Carl Preisner, who works at Procter & Gamble on the Global Diversity and Inclusion team. The irony of all of this is that Carl Preisner is a white man. Wait, he's not a Chinese piano player? No. So he's a white guy, and he's in diversity and inclusion at one of the biggest companies in the world. Well, I think it's actually interesting. This podcast dances around the edges of a lot of conversations on race. And I think Carl's was the first one where we really started to hit the nail on the head. And we probably did it because he was a white guy. Yeah, that's true. And that's kind of how he explains why a guy like him has to be on the road. He's not, it's not a team of all white guys at the company, but. Yeah. I think he did did say that you're right. He did his, his boss, his immediate boss is a female. He explained that to us. And it's the goal that the majority has to, has to have a seat at the table or frankly have to, you have to understand how to involve the majority to be advocates here. That's true. Yep. And he's able to translate, I'm going to say, right. All of these kinds of issues and, um, challenges for the majority. And so we were, we were happy to have him on this show. Yeah, and I think you, you already heard it at the top of this episode, but his quote is probably one of like the most, to me, it's like it almost speaks to the purpose of this show. If you're saying you're not a part of the problem, then you are part of the problem. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, it just it speaks so many volumes. And as someone in the majority, um, you know, we joke about model minorities, you know, that's how to be a model majority, right? It's to be Definitely. like actively wanting to play a role in the solution. Because if you're not, you're not just sitting on the sidelines. You're actively keeping us back. So, yeah. Um, yeah. He's a, he's a, he's just a really good guy. I mean, everything that he talked about was so, so much aligned with values and mission and purpose. Like that was kind of a running theme of our conversation. 
So a fun fact about him that he reveals to us is that he was he's an Eagle Scout. And when he said you that, you can kind of tell, like the yeah, way, the like, way he n- is. Yeah. No surprise. Like, of course you are an Eagle Scout, Carl. <laughs> you are like, you're the one person that I would not be afraid to like get lost in the forest with, you know, like you are a problem solver. You're just a really good hearted person. And it was just a really good feel good kind of conversation. Well, and it's like the metaphorical forest because this like the whole conversation on race, it's yep. not easy. And no. no, you know, he, I think some of it, I credit I've known him for years and I credit it to that he grew up all over Um, Mm -hmm. and he comes from a technical background. I mean, he studied as a chemical engineer. He worked in corporate R&D. But when I got to know Carl, yes, he was the R&D guy who lived down the hall from me, but he was way more civically engaged, whether it was like big brothers, big sisters, putting Wi-Fi in impoverished neighborhoods, just so much more civically engaged. Yeah. Inside and outside of work. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he tells us that one of his favorite quotes is a healthy private life depends on a healthy public life. And he goes pretty deep into how he follows that as a, as a way of living and being, um, and how that's brought him so much fulfillment in approaching life that way. Well, and it even informs his, his private life. So his wife, Erin, um, actually has a similar social bent. She's an employment lawyer and we had such a good conversation with Carl and then Sharon and I were talking about it after the, sh- the show that we decided to actually interview her on, I think it's going to be the next episode. So it's almost yep. like not quite a two-parter, but like a... It's totally uh, a two-parter. Yeah. It's part one, Carl, and then his better half, Aaron. Yes, I did say that, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, um, I'm very biased about this episode. He remains one of my favorite people in the world, probably because he does what we're supposed to be doing. All of us. Um, asking himself and holding himself to the harder questions. And um, yeah, uh, please meet our friend Carl. Carl, <laughs> I'm just going to dive right into it because this was my question to Raman when when, when you made it, it to our guest list. I said, Raman, how is it that the head of diversity and inclusion at Procter & Gamble is a white male? <laughs> well... <laughs> I've got, I actually have a very simple answer for you, and it may just blow up your whole show. I, okay. I am not the head of all of diversity inclusion. That would be our chief diversity officer, and her name is Shelly McNamara. Uh, and so to, maybe I should underwhelm the audience right off the bat with a bit of my story. <laughs> Go uh, for it. <laughs> yeah. I, so my, I, I work for Shelly, uh, and our global team, the way I, I'm senior manager, uh, most of the way PNG does diversity and inclusion is run right out of our businesses through line managers. We have a very small quote unquote team, diversity and inclusion team. It's about one, two, three, four, about five people uh, who do this as a full time, uh, and and I'm I'm one of those uh, people. So my role in particular is to help us figure out what are the few things that we want to focus on globally to support all of our teams. And in particular, to bring it back to your question, uh, what's a white guy doing? Uh, I spend most of my time building a movement as me- of men as advocates for gender equality. And in particular, we wanted that uh, to be led by a white guy. Uh, so, so in a sense, uh, in, in an ironic sense, Part of what makes me valuable is exactly uh, my my gender and my race. Uh, and say really, more. say more about that. Well, I think what 
So a lot of it is tied. For too long, we've had a lot of these conversations. Uh, and, and actually, I was looking ahead at some of your questions, but uh, one of the things that needs to change uh, if we're going to make the progress we aspire to in any of this is is really beginning to examine and explore uh, the insider group. The, you know, in, in, in gender, we're talking about men. Uh, in, in the U.S. and race, we're talking about white men. Uh, and so much of the conversations that we've had in the past, and in ours, and I would guess other companies like ours, they they, they can well intentioned become conversations about someone else. So if we think we're talking about gender, we're having conversations about women. Conversations about race are implicitly a conversation about whatever outside group, black, brown, yellow, or other. And what gets left out and never gets examined, um, and and there's high cost to this, are the insider group is in my case, white men. And why that is an issue is because that puts all of the burden of development on the backs of women and people of color. Uh, and in some cases, it can unintentionally give a pass to uh, to leaders who are sitting in positions of power and privilege where so much of the opportunity and change needs to happen. And also, too, along the way, what it kind of does implicitly, and I, though I don't agree with this, I can almost come to understand, is if someone's looking around and seeing where these conversations on inclusion and diversity are happening, and they see having a conversation uh, with you know, uh, a particular audience, with, with uh, African-American, with Asian, with Hispanic or other, and they don't see themselves, they start, it, can, it can start to unintentionally reinforce, well, this isn't really about me. You know, I'm, I'm on the outside of it mm-hmm. and, and maybe I don't even, I don't even know anything about it. So I'm going to become passive, right? It, it, yeah. it sends all the wrong signals. So I, I want to just pause because I can tend to talk a lot, but that's kind of what to your question, Raman, I think is very important is this is that it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, yeah. White men have a stake in all of it and stand to benefit from all of it. Uh, and, and so we got to, we have to address the, uh, examine and address the insider cultures. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I love think that. The, the beauty of it is, is, you know, we, we grew up in, in Procter and Gamble and a lot of P&G speak. Some of the things we talk about for consumers is like trial barriers, right? So why doesn't someone buy this laundry detergent or shampoo? And to be part of the conversation, you can't solve the problem with just minorities, people of color, women working on it. Everyone has to work on it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, men have to be feminists for feminism to really work as well. Right. And so I guess it's Carl, right. you, you bring the, the the white male perspective to the table because you're understanding, well, here's, here's where they're probably coming from. And is it also some of it, you can go have that conversation with white males without them feeling, oh man, here comes Roman the brown guy to tell us about diversity again. You know, is there an element of that or both, I guess? It, so I, I think what, what you're talking about was, you know, d- does it, uh, is there some credibility difference having leading a conversation like this as a white male uh, than leading it as a brown male or a female or any of the other among white men? That's what that specifically. Whether if if that wasn't quite right, I'll just answer to it. There absolutely is, uh, and it's unfortunate in some ways. But there's also it, the way I think about it myself is at least uh, you know in sales or in communication, maybe in influence. The best way to influence someone is to find out what already influences them. And though we may want to, and I think our goal absolutely is to expand people and, and, and help white men in this case to expand their view of where credibility lies, 
I think in the initial conversations, it's okay. We need to meet people where they're at and then put them on a journey. And that's a role and that's a privilege in a sense, you know, to use that word that white men will hold. Uh, so someone like me has to be talking to other men about it uh, because I can help them and all of us and myself in ways that others may not have access to with them yet. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And you're also then aware of any blind spots as well, right? So you can speak to those and um, come at it from a place of authenticity. So I love that answer, Carl. Thank you for answering that very challenging and straightforward question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, you say blind spots. I, I, one of the, uh, I've got a ton of blind spots. I, I, I might just be a step or two ahead. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I like to think there's, there's never there's never a moment where anyone's fixed, least of all me. You know, none of us get baptized and then we're, you know, we can go forth without having, it is a continual piece of work that will last the rest of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about happier times. Tell us something about your childhood. I hear that you were an Eagle Scout. (laughs) That's right. I, and I suppose I still am an Eagle Scout. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yep. My brother and I both were, we were in Scouts and it built for me. It is one of the, it influenced a lot of things in my life along the way, including who I think I am and Mm -hmm. what I think, uh, of uh, it means to be a good citizen and a good person. Uh, and also I love going camping, uh, and being outdoors, uh, and feel very comfortable and relaxed there. And that was part of it. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I think, uh, there is a, I have a point of view about a well-led life that was very well grounded in scouts. And it was the, uh, the concept of the community. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's very important in that, uh, we, any, any notion of a private life uh, is depends very heavily on how, how strong our public life is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it's what was uh, you're from? You're from the Midwest, Carl, right? Like Illinois. Mm, I was born in Chicago, but I grew up mostly in Houston and St. Louis. So okay. yes, to St. Louis, uh, no to Houston. You know, uh-huh. we would definitely have said we were our own place. Yeah. So where do you? Well, there's a fun question in there. So when someone says, "Where are you from, Carl?" What do you say? If I met you at a bar, what would you say? Uh, probably, I'd say I grew up mostly in Houston and St. Louis. I, okay. Does anyone ever say, well, where are you really from? <laughs> no, no, no one. Right. No, I get that. Hmm. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, yeah. Um, no, no. So the re- real reason I asked that um, is what was, what was it like growing up? Like, I mean, you know, I grew up in Alabama, Sharon grew up in New York City, um, very different kind of diversity experiences as kids. The pe- Obviously, the people we all saw on TV were the same, but like the kids in my school, the kids at the bus stop, what was that like for you um, as a kid? Yeah, I think, I think as a white kid, you know, one aspect, just to say up front, is it deferred a lot of my notions of experiences of race till much later in life. But I do remember being in Houston. Houston... Houston has a very large uh, Hispanic population, um, and and that is something that is, I, I would say, very visibly present. Um, so even so, growing up in Houston, I was aware of the notion of race, um, and uh, I knew that I was white. I knew that it was, I was not Hispanic. And then you know you get into these weird notions of, hmm, what does that mean? But largely, most of my growing up, just it it felt. I didn't even really think about it largely, I'd say, until like maybe mid-high school. Uh, yeah. Did you, have, 
And, and th- th- what I'm trying to uh, get at is, you know, the experience that shapes white men from Houston, right? Um, did you have black friends, Hispanic friends, Asian friends, or did that happen in college? Like, I had, so I was thinking about that. Um, I did have in in school, I had Asian friends, right? So I had uh, a friend of mine named Eugene Chu. Uh, he had a brother, Edison Chu. Uh, and and I had, there was, there were some, some kids and I was in elementary school in Houston, right? So yeah. it was, but we would play Dungeons and Dragons together and, and we, we, we would study together to the extent we did that stuff. So I, I, I did know, uh, uh, they, they were first generation in the U S so they would go home to homes where they spoke mostly in Eugene's case, Chinese. Uh, and, and I noted like some differences of, oh, he was always practicing, uh, violin, and I started to make these weird no, associations really? about exactly right. It's wow. like, like at the time, I did totally textbook. <laughs> That's right, and so much so that it was like, oh well, this is just the way things are. You know, it wasn't until later I started to explore even those associations. But yeah, mm-hmm. yep, it was so. But I was friends with them, uh, and and it it really never. Well, it, it seemed very easy and natural. Um, yeah. Because I, deep I think down the one inside, thing that, you are a nerdy Asian boy, aren't you? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm trying to practice an hour a night of guitar these days. And, and that notion of an hour of night came very directly from what my friend Eugene used to tell me. <laughs> Look at that. See? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's true. Well, you know what's yeah. funny about that but is... Did, uh, go, go ahead, Carl. Well, I was just going to say, I, looking back now, black for me and being black in the U.S. and having friends was something that... I was not exposed to uh, until much later. So Mm -hmm. as you were telling that story, um, it kind of brought up something in my head. So I grew up in like an upper middle class suburb in Alabama and mostly white neighborhood. There's a small Indian community that got together on the weekends. But um, our neighbors, um, the Davises, were a very uh, well-to-do black family. The mom was a doctor. The father was an attorney. And probably a weird joke to make, but I always thought of them as the reverse Huxtables, right? right. Because yeah. we watched that. And their kids, uh, Milton and Warren, um, were really good friends of mine. Milton was a year younger than me. And, you know, I'd play with them. And for the most part, that was the only black person I knew up until, call it, uh, mid-elementary school that I hung out with actively. And I remember this one experience of, you know, we had flags all around our house because mom was like, oh, this is a flag from England, where I'm from. Here's a flag from India, where your dad's from. And you know, then we had the Alabama flag because we lived in Alabama. And one day, you know, I was talking to Milton about it and he was at my house and I was like, don't you have an Alabama flag? He's like, no, my parents don't want to put an Alabama flag up because it looks yeah. like a Confederate flag. Wow. And I, and you know, I'm like, what a six or seven year old kid. I'm like, what? Oh. And now, you know, I see the Alabama flag and I, I see that. I think about that now. Right. Um, even though it's coming from the Huxtables, right? Like, so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, oh, you know, also, their parents made them play the piano every day for an hour. The <laughs> I, I swear, we had they had to stop playing to play the piano every day. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. I. So, so Raman, I, Sharon, I'm interested to hear your experience too. I wonder how close this is to Raman, where because I've often marveled at Raman's parents coming from India and then settling in Alabama, which yeah. even in the U.S., uh, you know, has notions of not being the most advanced country in conversations on race. Right. Uh, what's your growing up in New York story? City? Yeah. It, did it's you grow funny. up in New York city? Were you I first up, generation or I yeah. grew up in New York city. 
I'm technically second, like 2.5 generations in. So my grandparents on my father's side were immigrants. And then my mother was an immigrant from Hong Kong. Um, so I guess it's two and a half generations, right? One and a half, two and a half. Um, but I grew up in my very early years around Chinatown. So not in it, but close enough to it that my elementary school was actually in Chinatown. So 90% of the kids in my school were of Chinese descent. And so I grew up in a bubble. Um, and so on television, obviously no one looked like me, but in school, everybody looked like me. Um, my grandparents lived in Chinatown. We would visit them very often. And I went to Chinese school on the weekends. And so it was almost this like microcosm of a, a community within this greater, very diverse city. Um, Did and you play it the violin? No, but I played the piano. And probably for an hour a night, actually, now that I think about it, not for very long, but... Um, so I did piano for a couple of years. How did I, how, we, we went to piano classes and I think we had a keyboard at home. So we didn't actually own a real piano. Um, so that was my experience. And it wasn't until I got to middle school, which was a zone school kind of like in midtown Manhattan where there was more diversity that I felt like I was part of a minority group. And then reverse to that in high school, I went to a specialized high school uh, in New York where again, it was like 80% Asian because it was, you know, nerdy kids doing really well mm-hmm. in science and math and all of that stuff. So I sort of had this interesting experience of being part of a minority group, but yet not really ever feeling that way until I really honestly ended up uh, like in the in my professional life. So even, even in college, like I kind of found pockets of, mm-hmm. of people to associate with. And, and so, yeah, it really wasn't until I got into the working world that I was like, huh. There's only like one other, both Asian and female sometimes, you know, um, in this company. And it was, and that's when it kind of became really apparent to me. It was kind of going into the corporate world and seeing that. Yeah. It's interesting in in that were it not for what your experience had been like after getting out of college, then you and I would have had, I would have described mine the same way, which is that, yeah, I didn't really have to deal with, or or, or I was in my own bubble through Mm -hmm. most of my adulthood. And really it's out of college where I see the, greatest disparities. Right. Right. It's fascinating. Well, so what did, what did you want to be when you grew up, Carl? Oh, uh, in diversity inclusion, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> what? she's, I, I'm just laughing. I, I think the only remember I, in elementary school, we had a, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wanted to be a sky cap. Uh, what, what is that? Right. So you've gone, <laughs> you've traveled, you've driven to the airport and you know, when you pull up in your car and there's someone who is at right at the curb and we'll pick up your bags and check them in for you. Yeah. I'm sorry, Carl. They only do that for white people. <laughs> well, that might be true. Stop that might it, be true. Robin. Stop it. That's not true. We're oh my all goodness. <laughs> Those are sky caps. That's what I wanted to be. That was that's my dream awesome. growing up. Yeah, that's right. And I remember my dad had been in the civil service. He had a Navy hat, U.S. Navy. So he gave me the Navy hat. He wrote a little card of sky cap and I wore that to school. So I was ambitious, Aww. you know, as far as those things go. 
Well, you can well, so, carry so, my bags anytime, Carl. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great if we get to meet well, in person. That'll be the first thing I do. So, I mean, to, to play along the theme of Carl's really an Asian kid, you went into <laughs> no seriously. You went into science. You studied chemical engineering, and you actually started at Proctor in R and D. And I classic Asian move, right? So you uh, are. You are an Asian kid. Yeah. yeah. No, but maybe I am. <laughs> Although. But, so, I, it's funny. Go ahead, Roman. Finish your thought. Yeah, you know, the thought is, uh, how do you get, and I know a little bit of this because we're friends, right? But how do you go from, I'm a chemical engineer doing R&D, next generation, you know, skincare, laundry detergent for, you know, the biggest advertiser in the world to diversity inclusion? Um, I mean, I know you have a background in civic engagement and stuff. So walk me through the path of you know, how you started to get there? Because you didn't just overnight jump into it. You were doing stuff in the community, right? Yeah, yes, right. It's an interesting question. I, I'm just thinking about it from a new way. In some ways, I, I don't, what is the path to working on diversity and inclusion, right? It's like, what's the path to working on leadership? Or what's the yeah. path to exploring our humanity? Right. Uh, I, I don't know that there's a background that makes sense. I know how, at least pieces of how I wound up here. One of them, I told you, from an early age, things like Eagle Scouts and others, I started to form notions of that, that the world around me and people around me matter and that we all in very firm notions of fairness, um, but also that we all have common stake in each other. And, and, and in R and D, maybe that mixed with a, a very deep knowledge. You know, so you're right. It was most of my career has actually been in R and D 18 years and exploring you know, bias in a deep way because we're interviewing consumers. And if we ask the question the wrong way or we're not aware of the limitations of what how people can respond, we get garbage information. So there's a lot of R&D exploration and how do we innovate? How do we talk to people that get very... So I did a ton of reading on bias. But how I wound up here is, I wouldn't say coincidence, it's that I was working in the community. So I, I would be working with our Chamber of Commerce. I was on... A, uh, board for a youngest volunteer nonprofit group. And through those external organizations that were in some way focused on community diversity, I reached out to PNG to see if they could help. And I called up who's my manager today. Uh, and she had heard my name through a few other people. So to be clear, you're doing, you're doing this, you work at PNG as an R&D guy, but outside of work, extracurricular, you're doing civic engagement stuff. Right. So you said... I probably have a line. I can send an internal email to someone, right? Is that how you did it? Well, no. I, I wanted PNG to give us some money to do some work outside. I, I was not expecting the yeah. person who I would reach would offer me a job. Uh, wow. But she did. It was like, hey, uh, by the way, That's do you want great. a job? And, <laughs> and I loved R&D. I still do. So I, it, but it was like, uh, let me think about it. And, and a couple of days later, I called her back and said, yeah, I mean, I can't believe I get paid to work in this stuff. Are you kidding me? Most of this, yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. So, yeah. Yeah, that is so awesome. So, going back to your parents, what did they want you to be growing up? You wanted to be a sky cap. You ended up doing some R&D, and now you're, even though you're not the head, I'm going to still say you run diversity and inclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, large aspects of it, right. So, right. Uh, <laughs> just the white people uh, part. Just the white people part. Yeah, that's, that's just right. that part. That's right. That's right. <laughs> just, just, just the power structures. Um, what, what did my, what did my? Yeah. What, what did parents, they? I mean, was that even a thing? Like we, it's, it's a question that we ask most of our guests, and we always get, you know, like 
when I grew was growing up, my mom wanted me to be a doctor, you know, because I'm Chinese and that's kind of what you always want your kids to be. So just wondering if there were any expectations like that in your family. There, there were definitely were, right? So I was going to go to college. I mean, mm-hmm. those are, it was never said that way, but it was understood, right? I was going to, uh, I was going to study and I was going to come up and, and pursue something which would allow me to support myself and contribute positively. So I, yeah. I think my parents were kind of progressive. They didn't try and force me into something, but they, maybe they, the unspoken stuff might have been, yeah, but. I think in, like my freshman year in college, I registered for a Swahili course and they're like, mm, yeah, no, you need to drop that because that's not going to get you a job. <laughs> so, so I probably had un- <laughs> not uncommon expectations from my parents of you need to do the things that are going to get you a job. Right. But beyond that, doctor, lawyer, you know, engineer, uh, you know, teacher, they probably, they, they were pretty open. They were open. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And you, you turned out okay. You turned out okay. Oh, I'm I'm sure I was the easiest kid. Honestly, uh, yeah. like that, that's what he wants us to think. That's what he wants us to think. Uh, yeah. No, I mean it. I mean, even I loved junior high and high school. Like Aaron, my my wife Erin and I will sometimes compare growing up, and uh, and we're talking about teenage years, and and I'm in Big Brother Big Sister, right? So I mm-hmm. I, I have a mentee who's now 16 and he's a sophomore and high school and he's he's a young black man right young black Mm -hmm. man that's right yeah lives here cincinnati um and uh and i'm like boy i really loved high school you know it wasn't confusing for me maybe my confusion came later so i don't know that was a little a little odd that way got lucky tell us more about mentorship and and uh how that can impact outcomes you know i um i stepped into that with really just a belief that somehow it would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, you know, so I, um, at the time Ray and I were together it was 10 years ago, I was not married. Um, and it was just, it was just a view of, I don't know, look, if there's somebody out there that thinks my mentorship can help them and they want it, then, then I'm going to. And I knew with big brother, big sister, that probably meant someone from an underprivileged background in this city, usually black. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that would be the case, but I guess it all just started with, okay, well, let me see what I can do. A- and I'm glad I did it. I mean, uh, we, we've been together 10 years, I, I think, but I, I want to distribute, I have no grander notions of this was part of a plan or like, right. I've right. got it figured out. There's yeah. plenty of days where you're like, does it make a difference or not? And then somewhere you're like, yeah, it absolutely does. And, and all of that. But I mean, the only thread to all of it is just, you gotta, each of us has a responsibility to to contribute. Yeah. I, you know, so, I, Carl, I wish I no, really quick. I think I wish it was that easy. And I, this is, I'm, I'm actually gearing up for a compliment. You know, sometimes when people wind up doing horrible things, they say, Oh, they had a pattern of behavior. And I've known you my entire professional career. So it was like week one of moving to Cincinnati. And you've always just had this pattern of behavior of doing it's the Eagle Scout, man. Like, and this is a compliment. It's, I wish other people patterned behavior like you um, because there are a lot of jerks out there. There are more jerks out there. And whether it's mandatory civic civil service or if you have a privilege, uh, I listened to another podcast, this guy, Tommy Roof, that happened in Cincinnati. And he's like, you got to give till it hurts. Um, it's this like pattern of giving. And you've had that with your time. Like you could have been like the rest of us 20 year olds with corporate salaries going out and partying. And you're like, no, I'm going to spend my weekends doing Big Brother. 
or I'm going to go work on getting Wi-Fi in the city, um, et cetera. So yeah, it's a pattern of behavior that uh, unfortunately is the exception, not the norm that you exhibit. So you're, you're, you're awesome. You're awesome. That's my point. I, I appreciate and, that. I don't, yeah, go ahead, Sharon. You had. Yeah. Cause I wanted to tie that back into professional advancement. I know that as a female, something that they tell us, they meaning I'm always like, who's they, but like, you know, the powers that be or other women that have gotten ahead. <laughs> they is, they is Carl. <laughs> it's me. That's right. right. It's guys Carl. like me. That's right. Right. Mm-hmm. right. The white guys in, in diversity and inclusion positions, um, mm-hmm. have exactly. always said that a great way to get ahead is to find a mentor in your organization or somebody else in the industry that can guide you in that way. And, um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of how that works either at P&G or just overall for people that are looking ahead? And I guess a big question that I get from other women that are looking to get to, you know, find ways to advance is always, how do you find a mentor? How is that? Like, how do you go about that process? And how do you know when you've met the right person to help to, to, to serve in that role for you? Yeah, it's, let me start by, I always try and start with a little bit of humility for me to answer a question about what women should do to get ahead uh, as a white guy. Um, <laughs> well, and I mean it, I, I, it's, there's an intentional reason why I spend most of my time talk, trying to talk to other insiders uh, mm-hmm. about what we can do as opposed to trying to share with outsiders in, in this sense, just to use the terminology, um, you know, what they need to do. But, but yeah. I, I think what it is critically important. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and and I would even offer, maybe this term means something, mentors and sponsors. Mentors are people who might help you talk through what you're working on. Sponsors are people who advocate for you in rooms you're not in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they're both critically important. I, y- your question was maybe how to find it and how to know if it's a right fit. Um, right. So, one possibility is a lot of companies of a certain size have programs for that, right? There's uh, employee resource groups or affinity groups, affinity networks usually have uh, some intentional process for how to set up and establish mentorships and or sponsorships. Uh, and, you know, don't need to reinvent the wheel. I would certainly uh, talk to those groups and say, you know, well, what do we have? What do we have set up? Uh, where they may or may not exist, um, I, you know, I th- I think it, with a sponsor, you're looking for somebody who, s- somebody who is in a role or connected to a role you might be interested in, right? Because you because you're looking for well, if what voice, if it were to advocate for me, would or open the type of doors I might be interested in, and. I think with a sponsor, then you might just want to go see and boy, honestly, the way I've built sponsorships and mentorships is, is, is usually just reaching out to them and saying, Hey, can I learn from you? Right. I'd love to ask you some questions. Let's just have coffee. Let's just, I don't know where this goes. You don't, and maybe it's just one conversation, but if you got a half hour or an hour for me to buy you lunch, let's just talk and, and just kind of start there. Yeah. That's great advice. Thank you. Yeah. I I guess. Carl, P&G is doing it really well, obviously. Um, and, and, and there's room for improvement for everybody here. And you've, you've addressed some of the institutional truths that kind of have to change or you've, you've danced around them. I guess, what more can be done? Like if, if you could wave a wand and like pour <laughs> like infinite resources at something, uh, now's your chance. Like, 
I mean, what has I, to change? Yeah. Like one of the fundamental things that I think needs, we, we, we need to continue to develop is that this is still, when we talk about inclusion and diversity, particularly um, even globally with insider groups, is there's an implicit assumption that we're, that this is an issue of the outsider. There's a, there's a company called the Racial Equity Institute. Um, they do some very good work here. And they talk about this model of uh, fish, lake, and groundwater. Uh, and they'll give you a metaphor is that if you're walking along the shore of a lake and you see, you know, a dead fish wash up on the shore, you might look at it and go, huh, I wonder what was going on with that fish. You know, maybe it had some genetic thing or ate a, you know, ate something with the wrong chemical in it or something, you know. If you're walking along the shore the next day and all of a sudden you see 500 fish, you're probably not going to go, you know, what was going on with those 500 fish? You know, did, did all 500 eat the same wrong thing? At that point, you start to go, hmm, there's something else going on. What's with the lake? What's with the quality of the water in the lake? And then they also talk then about groundwater as being this notion of uh, the groundwater is actually, it, there are water sources that connect all of our lakes, right? The aquifers uh, that connect. And, and, and so to your point, question room and they talk about those things as the levels we want to solve this problem in usually when we address what's what's going on what are the hurdles to us getting around inclusion and diversity we're talking about the we, we talk about this like it's an individual issue well let's let's just get this one person a mentor or a sponsor or let's get them into college or the right education and we're, we're dealing at one fish at a time and not only are we not thinking about we're usually not even acknowledging that this is that sexism racism these isms are cultural and structural institutions that pervade everything we've got um in this country it could be laws about redlining or other that we have historical legacies for but it you know it's also just the human natural bias that shows up in medical systems so long way to say it i think where What's what's the change we need? Is we we need to start coming, uh, getting closer to what the issues are with our own um, way of talk viewing about the, the world. Talk about talk about the water, not the fish. Basically, yeah. I'd talk about the, the the lake and the groundwater. Right. Uh, let's talk. We we need to wrestle. And so, in to bring it to life, one of the things we're, we we try and do, and we want to do more in our company, is to talk. Let's let's have some conversations with our leadership, and particularly with the the insider culture and leadership about racism about sexism about about those because what we need is we need we need to make it visible we need to make it comfortable to talk about and we need to recognize how we're all the roles we all play in it it is it, it there's a new term which uh, called anti-racist uh and it's well maybe it's not that new i actually i should say it's new to me but it's very familiar in that saying what, what I hear from it is, you know, ra racism specifically like a moving walkway, right? If, if all you're doing is saying, I'm not part of the problem, I guarantee you, you're part of the problem because it's going to, the systems are built to reinforce it along the way. These are things like our legal system, which at one time said, you know, only white people could be citizens, or it could be voting legacies where for, I mean, how many years, it's a hundred years now only that women would be able to vote. Right? There are all these systems set up to create inequity. And if we're not actively working to identify them and, tear, and, and change them, then we might say, well, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not that way, but we very much are. We, we collude. And, and so I think getting at the systemic level is key. 
And from a personal standpoint, it has to come to a realization for more people that when we talk about these things, that it's, uh, we're all, we're all colluding, right? It particularly it's, I think racism, there's the notion that this is some, you know, it's like, it's discrimination committed by immoral individuals, you know, that they're mean people who intentionally dislike others. And what that totally misses is no, I'm racist like me, Carl. I, I know that I hold views that left unexamined are based on bad facts or bad, bad assumptions. And so, yeah, I think those two things really, we need to spend a lot more time on. It talks to the human nature of it to bring it back to comic books a little bit, but the best villains, nice. right? yeah, <laughs> let's do it. No, but like the best villains in cinema and comics are good characters who are humans who think they're doing the right thing, you know, like mm. whether it's Thanos or Lex Luthor, they think they're doing the right thing. Um, and they, they don't think they're the villain sometimes. Uh, they're not wearing a top hat, um, and that's the most insidious nature. Another thing that you, you spoke to really brought politics up to mind. If there's, any, um, if there's any example that leadership matters, it's when leadership does the right thing, it's, it's obvious. But, and I think of our political climate, when leaders do the wrong thing and signal the wrong behaviors, it gives everyone else a pass, right? Um, versus just kind of running up against and being anti-racist, so to speak. Uh, what matters hugely, right? I mean, it, it, yeah. it signals and, and says what's going to be safe if we do. What are we going to get punished for if yeah. we do? Uh, and and so, it, you know, the leadership is where power and privilege reside. And and there's so much. So it matters. What I'll say, as it, just for instance, in my work, I never go into a conversation in a new organization unless I have the 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 leader there, uh, and in most cases, it's a male leader. Uh, and if they're not able to join our initial conversations, we just don't do it. We'll just wait. The number one thing that's going to get any man involved in gender equality is seeing other senior men involved in gender equality, uh, and 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 that that speaks to it. So it, it it's true to varying degrees, but you know, depending on. But yeah, no, it matters, Roman. It absolutely does. And it creates space for what's safe. And, and I think to what you were talking about earlier, leaders have that one of the privileges of leadership is to talk about what matters and what doesn't um, and what, what's worth attention and what's not. So, you know, if we're going to have, if we're going to get to where people are holding conversations and we're examining insider culture, it has to start with leadership. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I'm going to bring this back to something that you've said earlier and that you actually told us as well before we hopped on, which is your, and correct me if I'm saying this right, but that you truly believe that a healthy private life is a result of a healthy public life. What does yes. that mean? What does that mean specifically for you? Yeah, I, I think it means two things. So at the at the personal level, I think what it means is that part of leading a fulfilled life is beyond just getting our own needs met. We are spending time thinking, how are we going to grow and how are we going to contribute to something other than ourselves? Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, take your pick. It could be whatever. It could be like a, a garden outside or it could be my immediate family, but it definitely has to be more than just yourself. And, and for me, that usually means the the larger community. Uh, and, and then, so at a personal so one, it just means that's what I think fulfillment comes from. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not from getting our base needs met. It's from knowing we're connected to something and contributing to something bigger than ourselves. 
and, and then also too, I think really from healthy society standpoint, uh, we we get lost when we start losing. I mean, we're living through it now in in a dramatic you know dramatic example of how connected we are, and how what someone else does or doesn't do or has available or doesn't have available affects me. Right? I mean, if we've got you just look at whether people can travel or not, and that could very well mean a life or death for myself or my family at this point. And, uh, and it highlights how connected we are, obviously, but that's always been the case. And it's a, the case across. So having, having a value for we need to tend to our public sphere. We need to make sure that, um, uh, that, that we are, uh, you know, finding ways for that to grow uh, is not just because some altruistic, you know, charity goal, even in the most mercenary sense, my life and the quality of my life depends on it. You are so inspiring. I think so we solved it. I think we solved it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's fixed. It's totally fixed. Yeah, we can all go home. Exactly. Uh, Thanks, Carl. <laughs> yeah. Speed round. Let's do the speed round. All right, Carl, are you ready? Uh, I'm totally ready. I got, I'm got. i trying to find where I wrote down the questions I'm going to ask you about. <laughs> oh, we're going to run out of time okay, before you can ask me anything. One. No, all, right. Um, all right, give me a book or a movie. Yeah, so, so, well, I'll give you two uh, since we're on the topic. One, so Jojo Rabbit saw that movie about uh, Amazing. Uh, last week sometime. Best movie of last, best movie of last year. <laughs> and I got to say, it, it, it given the... You know, what we're going through right now with coronavirus and the pandemic, it felt it hits so close to home in a way it never would have. You know, I, just just recognizing a point in time for those who don't know about it's about it's set in World War II in Germany and extends over the point where the war ends for these people. And and uh, and suddenly they have some freedom that they haven't tasted in so long. And boy, I that that holds new meaning for me today. So I'd give you that movie, which is great. And uh, and then the other one. I. I recently read uh, a book by Bell Hooks, uh, and it, it's it's this brilliant book on um, it's called "The Will to Change on Men, Masculinity, and Love." So I, it really puts out, I guess, what we call visionary feminism. But for me, it's just brilliant to listen to. It go, explores the costs for men. I, I wouldn't say men are men are not oppressed by gender inequality, but they do face costs. And they do stand to gain, and it just really explored it. And as someone who dressed up as Princess Leia for Halloween when I was uh, like 1981, I guess I was maybe seven years old. Why, why didn't you lead with the that? shame of of my friends who were like, "Carl, what are you doing dressed like that?" Like, you know, there's 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 consequences for men just with men that we should be working on this stuff, even if there were no women in the room. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd give you those two. Great book. That's great. What's one thing about you that nobody expects? Uh, well, I was going to say that I'm learning to play guitar, and I used to be a really great singer through probably junior high. Uh, and I'm, I'm tr- my, my ambition is to get to like kind of uh, open mic night quality here. Cool. Uh, so yeah, that's 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 my goal. <laughs> when that happens, let us know. We'll come. Uh, you got a deal. That's right. <laughs> What's your favorite mom dish? Oh, that'd be uh, Swedish pancakes. Yeah, 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 it's those wispy thin type. Like you roll them around a fork, and it, it's almost like a 
it's thinner than a crepe. I don't know if you ever had those. No, it's just yeah. That's never. Are they like for breakfast? Are they crispy? They're like. Or no, are they no, no. soft and well, they're crisp around the edge. So it's uh-huh. like egg, flour, milk. I mean, it's pretty basic. And it's it's just thin, it's crispy around the edges. And then you just put on way too much syrup, you know, to get that sugar. And uh yeah, no, that's 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 gotta be it. That sounds delicious. Um if you had a podcast, who's somebody that you might want to interview on that podcast? When I saw that question, it, I was thought for a minute, I would be interested to talk to Alex Haley. And I don't know if you're not familiar, Alex Haley, he's probably most familiar because he did Roots. Um, uh, but he he also wrote, and it was probably one of my first exposure, he wrote, um, partnered with Malcolm X, wrote the autobiography of Malcolm X. And he did a whole series of these amazing interviews um, that were published in Playboy magazine. Uh, but just really interesting people from what was his name lincoln those one of the the leader of the white supremacist movement at the time but uh you know just public uh, melvin belli famous lawyer anyway what made made him interesting to me is uh he's somebody who has talked to a lot of different people and finds a way to connect with people uh and and and, and really get some interesting insight out of it and i I don't know. I guess that shows where my mind is today. That that is more interesting to me than, you know, how how to how someone figured out how to connect and tell some interesting stories than than anything else at this point. Mm. Mm. All right, Carl, you ready for the last question? I I think I'm ready. I've been I've been exercising <laughs> more than like almost every day for the last three weeks. So hit me with it. <laughs> Go, going up, going going up and down the stairs of your house. Honestly, I've been exercising. Wait, I, I don't, I don't know what your pandemic habit changes are, but we got to get out of the house. So just about every night for the last three weeks, which is how long my wife and I've been home, we've gone for a walk or a run. Uh, it's that's one amazing silver lining. Um, what does being a model minority mean for you? I I think what it means is as a as a white man is just kind of being aware of of where I sit. Uh, and what awareness, what my work is to, uh, to continually pay attention, to build awareness and then who, and, and the privileges I have to, to influence. So I, I, I think I, I will never get rid of, I will never get rid of them. I don't think we usually can. Most of the advantages I get, I didn't ask for, and I was born with. Um, so even if I don't wish they weren't there, I can't wish them away. But what I can do is I can. I can try and use them honorably and try and make sure it, it's shared. And so that's, that's what it means to me is my minority status as a white guy really just means I, I need to recognize I'm a white guy. That means different things, gives me access to some things. And what can I do with that? Well, you definitely are a minority, Carl. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks, Roman. Awesome. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. And here's a preview of our next episode. I'm American as well. So I don't like when people try to say, you know, well, you know, are you Jamaican? Are you American? No, I'm, I'm both. And I'm 100% Jamaican. And I'm 100% American. 
That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all model minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.